In your sermon outline on the back is the scripture reading for today, Psalm 73. And Charles Wesley obviously drew heavily on Psalm 73 as he wrote that beautiful hymn that we just sang. So this morning we continue our, what we call, holy eavesdropping on the human heart. As the psalmist writes down what's going on inside his soul. Now, the word psalmist, it just means psalm writer, and we're not exactly sure who wrote this particular psalm. So we just call him the psalmist. So listen as he ruminates, as he reflects on life, tries to make sense out of life. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance, They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you have placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. 
You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So far the reading of God's Word. And let's recite a verse of that at the end. You repeat after me, sort of like a wedding vow. Repeat, whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Can we really say that honestly? I have to confess that over the many years I've read through the Psalms and come to that verse in Psalm 73, I find that I'm able to say honestly, Lord, in heaven, I know you're all I desire. I I have no lust for any angels or anything all the silver or gold of heaven, you I know I'm going to see face to face. I can't wait to be with you and to see you in your glory and to fellowship with you in heaven. In heaven there is nothing I desire but you. It's that next phrase that sometimes trips me up. And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. And I kind of choke it out. Don't I also want a large flat screen TV? Don't I also want the Phillies to win another World Series? Or more substantially, don't I desire a wife who will respect me and honor me? Or if you want... A husband, don't I desire a husband who is kind and affectionate and and cares to serve and meet my needs? Don't I want children who obey me? Don't I want a boss who appreciates me? There's many things I desire on earth. Doesn't God know this? So what is the psalm writer getting at? What is the psalmist getting at here? What he's teaching is not that you have to eliminate all desires. That's Buddhism. He doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. But what he's getting at here is that there are deep longings of the human heart and deep desires of the human heart that only and ultimately find themselves met in God, in the Lord. And in priority and in comparison, there's nothing else. There is nothing else that matters. You see, friends, the Lord is not a little sweetener that you want to add to your life to take away some of the bitterness when it occasionally gets bitter. That's not what Christianity is. The Lord is not a spoke on the wheel, is He? The Lord is what part of the wheel? He is the hub of the wheel. He is the ultimate desire of your heart. Do you know that? And as the psalmist writes, really, there are three deep desires that in knowing the Lord, He gives you. 
in the midst of the confusion and the frustration and the pain of life, He gives these to you. Do you have them? I want you to to know He offers these to you today. Three things. You see them in your sermon outline. You fill in the blank. The first thing that you and I desire is to have the ultimate counsel that makes sense out of life. Because I and you have a deep longing to figure out what makes life work. It's a dreadful thing to live in a world that doesn't make sense. What are the rules for life? What are the categories of explanation that give life meaning? And then the second thing God gives, what I desire, is the ultimate relationship. And the ultimate relationship he gives is with himself. And no other human intimacy can match it. And thirdly, you and I desire to know the purpose, the purpose or the goal of life. And that is, what we have been saying is the chief end of man today, to glorify God And enjoy Him in glory forever. With your counsel you guide me. Yet I am always with you. And you hold me in your right hand in intimacy. And afterwards you will take me to glory. Let's talk about each of these things that the psalmist gives us as we do this holy eavesdropping on his heart and on his life. The first thing that he is so grateful for. You see, we're just going to look at a few of these verses at the end of the psalm in verse 17 and verse 24. With your counsel, you guide me. God's guidance, God's rules, the categories making sense out of life because it's impossible to live life without them. Consider basketball. When you play a pickup basketball game and you're enjoying yourself out on the court and then how frustrating is it when nobody else will Play by the rules. Or if they change the rules in the middle of the game, it's frustrating, isn't it? It doesn't seem right. If you're a musician, you're in the orchestra, you're playing along, and suddenly half the people decide to play in a different key. It's terrible. We need rules. We need organizing principles to give life meaning. But you see, the psalmist has a problem. Here's his problem. Things weren't going according to the rules, at least the categories he was working with. You see in verses 4 through 12 that he's confused. He starts out saying, well, wait, good things happen to good people. Don't they? Surely God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. Good things happen to good people. And then verses 4 through 12, he says, but it's not working out that way. What's happening? The wicked are prospering. The, uh, and, and he says, my feet, I'm confused. They're, my feet are almost slipping. I'm on the edge of a cliff. I thought good things were going to happen to good people. I've been trying to keep my heart pure. It's not working. They are carefree. They get away with whatever they want. Nobody holds them accountable. They're rich. They're just gaining in wealth. All these sweet waters keep coming to them. 
And it's not fair. And he says, I'm confused. I'm disoriented. Has that ever happened to you? Anybody else here can relate to the psalmist as you eavesdrop on his mind? It just isn't working right. They have all the fun. They have all the money. You know? Teenagers, I remember in high school, I was uh, not that cool. And there was a group called the Hoods. And the Hoods were... They were tough, they were undisciplined, they were mean, they were arrogant, and they had all the girls. The girls liked the bad boys, they liked the dangerous guys, and, and I was left in the dust. Doesn't seem right. Again, this is why we have this Holy Spirit-inspired eavesdropping into the heart that's observing. This isn't good things are not happening to good people. And down in verse 21 and 22, maybe he's describing us when we fall into this trap. What does he say? When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast. I was a donkey before you. Until, and something happens to the psalmist, until I entered the sanctuary of God, verse 17, then I understood their final destiny. What happens? He comes into the presence of God and God's counsel and God's rules. Now he says, wait, they still apply. It's just that God's timetable is different from my timetable. And he begins to perceive where the world is going and the end. And, and he, his mind is transformed and he's so encouraged. And this happens to you and to me when, it, well, I hope and I know for many of you it happens Sunday after Sunday. You come here like the first part of Psalm 73, but by the time you leave, you say, oh, I've come into the sanctuary of God. And it's not this room. It is what the, what the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says. You actually get into heaven. We come into the heavenlies. And there, sanity comes back to us again. Or maybe it's in your home fellowship group and you drag yourself to home fellowship and you're feeling down and you're feeling beaten. And by the time you leave, your heart is encouraged again. You're back to sanity. You, they prayed for you. They lifted you up. They encouraged you. And you just you saw clearly again. Maybe it's in Sunday school. Someone this morning said to me, in Sunday school, I, I wouldn't miss it. It's how my mind finds sanity. Maybe it's your own personal quiet time. You're just listening to a piece of music and suddenly you discover tears running down your cheeks. And you have the joy of the Lord again. I'll take this a little deeper. You see, we have rules for how we think the universe is supposed to work. Christian, this happens to you. I have rules. For my marriage, if I love my wife, she should respond to me and really enjoy me. If I'm a good parent, my kids should obey me 
and, and, and uh, respond to me. We have rules, but they don't always work. And in spite of your love for your wife, she might turn out to be like Hosea's wife, unfaithful. And even if you are a good parent, they might be rebellious like Esau. And then Jesus says, for those who are harsh to you, even if my wife is harsh to me, he says, turn the other cheek. Mm. I don't like this. Because, see, when my wife is unloving for me, I want to make her pay. And when my son is rebellious, I want to make him squirm. But Romans chapter 12 says clearly, clearly, do not return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Hmm. Really? That's how I'm supposed to respond? I once was talking with a non-Christian woman, must have looked up our church in the yellow pages. Her marriage is bad. Her husband mistreats her. She comes and she says, Pastor, you know, again, she doesn't want to pay for a therapist, so she wants to talk to me. I'll talk to anybody at least once. She sits down, non-Christian woman. She says, Pastor, my husband is unkind to me. He's severe to me. He flirts with other women all the time, and I don't like it. I check his every text message when he's asleep. I check his email. I see who, he's, who he is about and, and who he's uh, talking to, and... And I want to know, oh, I'm so suspicious. How do I best keep track of him? How do I punish him until he stops this? And this passage from Romans 12 came to mind. You know, what's God's rule? What's God's counsel when there's evil coming? It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I said to her, you know, my counsel to you, I think, comes from God's counsel, and I want you to attack him with love. Attack him with love. I want you to stop all this suspicion, all this checking up on him every minute and hunting him down like a private detective after him all the time, and instead I want you to find ways to bless him and enjoy him and let him know that you care deeply about him and to show him some respect any way that you can in your life. And you know what she said? She said, huh. And her face became like a rock. She was not impressed. Why? Well, because she had never entered the sanctuary of the Lord. She had never come to Jesus Christ. She herself had never tasted, really tasted, the grace of God. Thou art full of grace, we just sang. There's no grace in her. And grace was utterly foreign to her as a tool, as a power in life. What happens is when we sin, when we're struggled, we want to fight evil with returning evil for evil. When we do that, you know what it's like? It's like these Chinese finger traps. 
like the Chinese finger traps. Have you ever had one of these? These are amazing. And when you want to fight evil with evil, when you repay evil with evil, which is a rule that many of you have, many of you learned this, an eye for an eye, many of you learned hostility. You, someone, someone attacks you, you attack them back harder, or even more, you do to them before they do to you. That's what you learn, learn how to attack first. And I say, as you do evil for evil, this is what it's like. It's like you, you get stuck. You get stuck in it. You can't get out. Pull as hard as you will. It only grips you tighter. It only gets worse. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Respond with grace. Bomb them with love. And watch what happens as you have been loved, as you have been forgiven, as you have been blessed. Now you bless, you love, you forgive. And watch and pray and see what happens. See, the non-Christian says, this is too heavy, too hard. But Jesus Christ says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. My yoke is easy. The non-Christian says, oh, no, it's not. It's heavy. Oh, yes, it is. It is easy when you have drunk from the wells of grace, the wells of forgiveness, when you have entered the sanctuary of the Lord and come clean before Him. You see, with your counsel, you guide me. Now, the second deep longing is this, that you and I desire the ultimate relationship, which gives you the intimacy that no other can match. And that's the second deep desire or longing. You see, not only do I get rules to live under, counsel that guides me, he gives me someone to live with. And who is that? Himself. Verse 23, I am with you and I hold you with my right hand. The the implication here is intimacy, closeness. Down at verse 28, the response of the psalmist is, wow, this is good. The nearness of God is my good. But apparently, in the first part of the psalm, the psalmist didn't feel that closeness with God, and he didn't like being alone. He felt isolated. He felt cut off from God and from human companionship. Why? Why? Because all of us, the Bible says, are born in sin. And if you're born in sin, after the fall of Adam and Eve, you are alienated from God And then, remember, Adam and Eve put on the fig leaves and they got in hostile with each other. They were alienated from each other. We are alienated from God. We are alienated from man. And so there's this sense that I don't fit. I don't belong. I'm not accepted. There's something wrong. Listen, can you relate to that? Have you ever felt, even in a busy mall, have you ever felt lonely? Isolated? Have you ever felt like you just didn't quite fit with the crowd? Well, Genesis 2, it addresses this in some sense. It says it's not good for a man to be alone. And God gives marriage as a partial solution to the problem of aloneness. And marriage does provide a certain satisfaction for the relational component of who we are. But listen, listen carefully. Marriage only scratches the surface. The sense of not belonging is like a hundred-foot hole inside of us. And marriage, well, marriage will fill a few feet of that. 
But it is a colossal mistake to believe that marriage will do for you what only the Lord can do for you. So many of us, we fall into the trap of expecting a wife or a husband or children or parents to do for us what only the Lord can do. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on your toes here today. I know your, your marriage is precious to you. Your family is precious to you. At least it used to be. But listen, it will never do for you what only the Lord can do. It's a, only a couple feet of that hundred foot hole that's in your soul. But no, no, I enter into a bargain with my wife. She may not know it. But I enter into this bargain and I say, I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. And I will accept you and cook meals for you if you will accept me and make me feel good about myself. It only goes so far. It only works for so long because nobody can fill that hole. There's not a wife in the world who can fill that hole. Not a husband in the world who can do it. Only Jesus Christ can make you feel like you belong. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 2, there's this beautiful passage about belonging. And he says of the Christian people, but you are a chosen people, a holy nation. Then he says this, a people belonging to God. It's gorgeous, this picture of belonging. And it's taken from an Old Testament text that says you don't belong. And now he says, but you now belong to God. And because I belong to Him, this is true, listen carefully, because I belong to Him, I don't have to prove anything to anybody. And I don't have to have anybody prove anything to me. Instead, I'm just freed up to minister and love my wife and my children. And not just to use her to make me feel good and important. Do you, are you with me on that? Because I belong to God, I'm free not to manipulate other people for my own deep relational needs. I am free to love others because I am loved and accepted in the beloved Son. How can I explain this not belonging, belonging thing? A couple of years ago, I used to teach a Bible study at the Union League in Philadelphia. Now, the Union League is one of the most exclusive clubs in the city of Philadelphia, right down next to William Penn there at City Hall. And uh, the Union League is members only. I'm invited to teach this Bible study there, and I walk in past the security, and all right, he lets me through. I walk into the waiting, to the, to the lounge, and everybody looks at me, you know, who are you? Why are you here? Put down their paper, look their cigar down, you know. I go up to the bar, order my root beer. We only serve members, sir. And that makes me mad. Who is this? What is this? What's going on here? What does that do for my sense of belonging? I don't belong. Everybody's shuffling, and they're looking a little nervously there in the lounge until finally the fellow who invited me walks in, and he says, Hey, John, good to see you. There's a palpable sigh of relief because I don't belong, but he belongs, and I'm with him. 
Now do you understand? And suddenly I'm welcome and here's my mug of root beer and, and, and we're together and then the crowd gathers and there's this Bible study in this very unusual place to have a Bible study. What's the point? I have no business going into the Union League. But I have no business going into heaven. I have no business waltzing into the presence of the Holy of Holies when false and full of sin am I. But he belongs. Jesus belongs. And I'm with him. And the New Testament says, and he presents us to the Father. He presents us to the Father. And His righteousness imputed, given to us. This is the gospel. His righteousness clothes me and welcomes me into the presence of the Father. I might doubt that I could belong to the Father because of my sin, but I could never doubt that Jesus belongs to the Father and I'm with Him. Do you get the point? Now, the psalmist says in verse 28, As for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge. What does that look like in your life? Is it good for you? Can you say this today? Is this common that you think and express? It's good for me to be near God. This might be a new concept for some of us. It's really, this is really good to be close to God through Jesus Christ. Then I can glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. You know, when Jesus said, let your light shine so men see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, He was not asking you to do God a favor, to get God more, make God more glorious. Can you make God more glorious? No, of course not. God is all glorious. All that we do is reflect and show forth His glory in the way that we live. And I tell you, I'm not really good at intentionally living for God's glory. I more, by His absolute grace, I more look back as I go along through life and discover that I made a decision some time ago, or I had a conversation, and you know what? I stopped thinking about myself for just a couple minutes and his reputation is what mattered to me. His honor is why I made that choice. And I'm sort of surprised and astounded and so grateful that the Holy Spirit actually did that inside of me. And I want more and more of that. And then publicly you begin to live out of that relationship with him for his glory. It's so interesting to watch the news media respond to this quarterback for the Denver Broncos, a young man named Tim Tebow. What does he do? It's very interesting. He, he gets down on his knee and he prays after he scores a touchdown. Now, why would he do that? Is he showboating? I mean, most of the guys do a fancy dance. Why, why does he do this? I saw Dwight Howard, who plays for the Orlando Magic. Dwight Howard is this magnificent basketball player. Probably, pound for pound, the strongest basketball player in the NBA. He is amazing. I saw him at the Garden last year, playing the Knicks. And Dwight Howard was on the Jay Leno show. 
And Jay Leno said, hey, I saw you doing that Tebow thing to Dwight Howard. Put him right on the spot. He said, I saw you doing that Tebow thing. Why do you do that? And there's this picture, and he puts this picture for all of the NBC broadcasting audience to see. And here's Dwight Howard kneeling down in that pose for prayer. And Dwight Howard, without missing a step, he said, you know, I love Tebow. He says, Tebow lives for the glory of Christ, and so do I. And I don't care who knows it, and I want everyone to know it. Leno said, It's powerful, isn't it? This intentionality of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ and wanting to let your light shine before men, and you don't care who sees it, that they would glorify your Father in heaven. It's really something to think about. You see, when you get your well done, my son, my daughter, from God, once again you are freed up to love others. Do you catch this? So he gives me counsel, rules that make sense out of life. And then he gives me a relationship with him that, that sets me free to love others. And then thirdly, what does he do? He gives us a purpose, the glory of God. And you see, that's what Dwight Howard and Tim Tebow were talking about. My goal is not just to make money and to pay the bills. Is that what you think life is about? Is life just living to pay the bills, to wash the dishes, to feed the kids? Is that all there is to life? God said, I created you for my glory. Jesus said, let your light shine so that men glorify my Father in heaven. And that's how Jesus lived. John 17, verse 1. That's how Jesus lived. At the end, as the darkness approached, Jesus prays, John 17, 1. He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Jesus was all about the glory of God. And so in a world that ignores God, you don't. And in a world that ignores God, you care about His reputation. Yes, you need to make a living, but that's not your chief end. Yes, you need to graduate from high school, but that's not your chief end. Yes, you need to make the team. That's not your chief end. Yes, you need to uh, get into a college or graduate from school, but that's not your chief end. The chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Live for His glory. How do you get there? I'm going to finish with this. How did He get there? He came into the sanctuary of God. Now, we don't come to the Old Testament sanctuary anymore. How do we come into the presence of God? We come through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the door. I am the way. Jesus himself is the earthly tabernacle sanctuary of God. To have a relationship with him is the way in that suddenly gives you the perspective that makes sense out of life, that gives you the deepest relationship. I will never leave you or forsake you. That gives you the path to glory. Have you ever come to Jesus Christ personally? This might be a day for you to do that. Have you ever trusted Christ as your 
way to the Father, your Lord, your Savior. And you say, I don't care who knows it. I want in. I want to belong to him. Well, if you do, if today's that day, or if you say, my, I'm just the guy whose foot is slipping. I, I used to believe all that, but now I'm not so sure. Then you come. Jesus says, come. He says, come, enter. Come to me. Come to me. Let's do that now. Let's bow our heads. Let's come to him and pray. Our Father, we are so glad that you provide what we need in these deep longings of our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that we would not operate in our lives as single adults or married people, that we would not operate as as children or teenagers out of some deficit, a desperation, but rather we would live our lives out of the fullness of knowing you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, ultimately, there is nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail me, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I believe, O Lord. Yes, today, I believe in Jesus. O Jesus, be my vision. Open the eyes of my heart that I would behold you and love you and serve you with gladness all my days. In your name I pray, amen.